0: Welcome everyone. We're talking again today about conflict, but today we are focusing on language and communication itself. This episode is the first of a two-parter, so be sure to put a reminder in your phone to catch the second half next week. Before we begin though, I need to remind you again about the new Geneva Academy Shepherds Conference that is happening on October 6th and 7th here in Bloomington at Trinity Reformed Church. And I need to remind you because I'm sure that some of you listening today haven't registered yet. What are you waiting for? The link to register is right there in the show notes and so it couldn't be easier. The title of the conference is The Good Soldier and you don't wanna miss it. All right, the conversation today is with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks and this is the Out of Our Minds Podcast. Today, I want to focus on language, because after all, when we talk about fighting and conflict, and obviously that's what a soldier does, he engages in conflict, when we talk about fighting and conflict, we're actually talking about words. We're talking about fighting with words. So I want to talk about words today, and I came across a very interesting quote. I don't know anything about this book, I don't know anything about the author, but I came across a book titled Nonviolent Communication. And on the back of the book, the author has this to say about it, quote, nonviolent communication shows us a way of being very honest, without any criticism, insults, or put downs, and without any intellectual diagnosis implying wrongness, unquote. That, I think, is, a, is just about a perfect description of the kind of communication language that is expected of us today. It goes by a number of terms. Uh, One of them that I've used before is gelded discourse, sometimes called feminized discourse. But he's promoting in this book a type of communication that, well, let me throw it your direction, Max. What is he trying to communicate? Let me just read it one more time. Nonviolent communication shows us a way of being very honest without any criticism, insults, or put-downs, and without any intellectual diagnosis implying wrongness. In your words, what is Nonviolent communication.
1: Well, it's funny because I was listening. I thought, oh, this is nice because I don't ever have to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Because if if I can communicate with people and they're never wrong, well, -hmm. then that just means that I have the wonderful privilege of never being wrong myself. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. And (laughs) isn't that handy? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what I think of it initially is the whole thing is is so soft Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm to describe what we think of it. We're going to of course violate the whole concept because we're, we're going to be violent in our communication about us, about this because it's, it's just well, okay. So it's, so
0: he's defined nonviolent communication the way he would. He says it's honest, but it's without any criticism, insults or put downs or without any intellectual diagnosis. So violent communication then must be a thing that has any of those things and and so what is violent communication it's apparently it's got criticism it's got insults it's got put downs
1: judgments
0: but then the the money line i think is that it does come with intellectual diagnosis implying wrongness which Mm -hmm. is to say in other words he would say that if i tell you that you're wrong that i've been violent toward you, that my communication toward you has been violent.
1: Yes, that's what he's saying. He's saying saying that any kind of judgment is wrong.
0: Well, okay. So our immediate reaction to a quote like this is to be repulsed and to mock it, I think. That's my immediate reaction. But let's take it, I think it's very actually important for us to take it seriously because this book has like 5,000 five-star reviews or whatever on, on Amazon. So I don't think to put it one way, I don't think we have the liberty of simply mocking it because it is the world in which we live. And so let me ask you, Tim, isn't violent communication a
2: real problem?
0: Wouldn't it be better if we all learn to be more empathetic in our communication with one another?
2: Well, I, I don't think that, I think that's a false antithesis to set up violence in such a way that it's mutually exclusive of empathy. When I was a young man, I was a pacifist until one night I realized that there was a man threatening my sister in Chicago. And I realized after I told him once to leave her alone that if he didn't, I would kill him. And that was an awakening moment for me to realize that actually I wasn't a pacifist. But hating abortion, I've thought a lot about the issue of nonviolence of Gandhi. I read a biography of him when I was a young man, of Martin Luther King Jr. And I think what we have to realize is that what is classically characterized as nonviolent protest, Mm -hmm. that only works if you have a very truncated view of what violence is. And so I think we need to define our terms. Mm -hmm. If by violence you mean threatening and harming somebody physically, Mm -hmm. all right, that you take up a gun and shoot somebody. And that's as far as you go with the concept of violence. Then, yeah, you could say Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and people that chain themselves to an abortion door to keep it from operating, killing babies for a day, that they're all engaging in nonviolence. Mm -hmm. The question is, does the abortionist the one that's paid by the mother or the father to kill the baby? Does the abortionist feel... That you are being nonviolent when you come and get arrested on their facilities grounds, okay? Mm-hmm. And what that makes you realize, or were the Brits? Did they feel like Gandhi was nonviolent? Well, th- this is essential to the whole summer of riots we had
0: last summer in 2020. It was nonviolent, peaceful protests,
2: and so. Beauty is in the vi- the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed recently is that the news pieces having to do with January 6 refer to it as an insurrection. I never once saw any news article about the riots of Black Lives Matter referred to as an insurrection. Right, and yet they more directly attacked the instrument of civil authority more directly than the January 6. Disturbance, riot, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But one's labeled an insurrection. And so, what I want to do is define violence. Violence is defined, just you can just find any number of definitions. I'm just reading haphazardly as behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. But then the second definition is strength of emotion or an unpleasant or destructive natural force. So I want to look at this
0: quote again. Nonviolent communication shows us a way of being very honest, which I think, and then he says, without. I think this is a tell, right? He's trying to hold on to this concept of honesty, but he's feeling like he's got to prove it, right? He's got to prove somehow that nonviolent communication can be honest. And then he says, without any criticism, insults, or put downs, which you know, criticism, insults, and put-downs, those are things that generally, I mean, criticisms we might say are good, can be good, but often we would acknowledge that criticisms can be very destructive. Insults are destructive, put-downs are destructive, and so we're on board with him. But then he says, and without any intellectual diagnosis implying wrongness, which is an intellectual's way of using a lot of words to say, without st- saying that anyone else is wrong, okay? Okay. And so you were trying to define terms because he has set up a a false dichotomy here. He has labeled communication which has criticism, insults, put downs or tell someone that they're wrong, all those four things together as being violent communication. And we might we might agree with some of that, but we wouldn't agree with all of it. And so I think what we're trying to do here first and foremost Uh, is that we need to open up and understand what is going on in our culture that we are committed to this concept of nonviolence and uh, nonviolence in our communication and an inability unwillingness to say that someone else is wrong what's going on there
2: well he's he's saying Nonviolence is central to his entire project, okay? Yeah. And if you listen to the way he defines nonviolent discourse communication, he ends by saying you must not disagree. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say that he's just saying you, you shouldn't tell somebody they're wrong, but that's the essence of a disagreement. If you're disagreeing because they use a the word improperly or because they have no fear of God, Both are disagreements, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the nature of his definition of nonviolence, it's a violent definition because it rules out everything that a Christian is and believes and does. Okay. A Christian can't exist in the world knowing of the fall Original sin, total depravity. A Christian can't know what happened in the first three chapters and the violence of the first three chapters where Adam and Eve clothed themselves because they're shame with each other, then then hid from God, then God cursed them, God rebuked them. I mean, he would define everything in Scripture, everything, as violence. Mm-hmm. And so if we're to be people of the book, if we're to believe in words like Neil Postman exhorts us to, although an unbeliever and amusing ourselves to death, if we're if we're going to be alive as God designed us to be, mm-hmm. fully engaged with our own evil nature, the evil nature of others, with the residual beauty of the garden of Eden imperfection, with potential, with love, with, if we're going to be alive, we're going to live to make distinctions and judgments. Mm-hmm. And what, we're supposed to be alive and, and just act around other people as if we're as dead as they are? I mean, do you know how dead a man is who is incapable of allowing anybody to disagree with him?
0: I'm imagining an experience I had recently. Yeah, I mean, it's
2: everywhere today. And so what everybody's doing, misery loves company, and the people that are walking dead men demand that everybody succumb to the same deadness. You just said somebody who is incapable of disagreeing or being disagreed with is like a dead man. Why is that? Well, it's because he is denying the snowflakeness that God has designed into every part of his creation. Okay. He's denying diversity he's d- denying plurality he's denying beauty he's denying well I, e- everything that makes the world beautiful and and sin and wickedness well and and, uh, and, and, right, he's, yeah.
1: and he's saying I'm suppressing them all and you're going to join me in suppressing them all. It's
2: insipid yeah it's it's utterly stupid dumb yeah it's, well, it, it's like eating the Sahara desert relating to a man like that. Uh Paige Patterson once said reading the NIV is similar to reading to eating the Sahara Desert. And and okay. so what you do is you remove all the beauty and all the horror of life. My dad used to say about Reader's Digest that it only had three articles. Oh the wonder of it, oh the horror of it, and oh. <laughs> yeah. And this man has only one of those three articles, and that's oh. <laughs> Okay,
1: it's interesting that I did some looking into that after you sent us that uh, yeah that little uh, quote from the book, and I did some looking into people who really follow him and like him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not a accident that the organization of Unity Churches mm. are big followers of this guy. Okay, and 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 it's well known that they don't believe in sin. Right, they don't believe in evil. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. believe men. Men are basically evil. They believe men are basically good. It reminds me of, uh, and so it's a surprise when you're talking about wrongness. Because what you're doing is you're trying to bring into the conversation something that we're trying. You know, if we could just get rid of the talk about wrongness, yeah, then then everything would be better. We would have, you know, there would be balloons and flowers and and everything would be nice if we could just stop talking about somebody being wrong. Yeah, Tim, you were, when
0: you were talking a minute ago, I thought the way I would characterize it is to say is is not to talk about this that he's denying the unique nature of every person but i'm wondering is there actually a person there is there a person in there somewhere and then getting back to your point max they would say that there because of their belief that there's no sin there's nothing there's nothing deeper that is keeping us from being in unity with one another well, I the think only thing might, that's keeping us is is the fact that we're not we don't have our words right.
1: They might say they're sin, okay, but what what they would say is that every problem is just the unrealized potential that we had in our okay. goodness, yeah. And so they look at this guy and they say he's able to lead us to find the goodness of our potential through his discourse, mm-hmm. through his mm-hmm. training in discourse. And in the end, what they're denying is that they're denying that at the bottom of everything is this problem. And the problem is me in front of God Mm -hmm. and my sin.
2: A number of years ago, I got asked to go to the high school, one of the two local high schools at Reformation Day and explain the Reformation to them. So these were, uh, you know, it was an upper level class in high school. The kids were bright. And as I thought about how to, explain to them the nature of the reformation, I realized I had a problem, which is none of these kids knew they had a soul. Mm. Yeah. You know, they had Facebook, you know, they had video games, they had clothes, they had, and I realized how on earth do you explain the reformation to kids who have had their soul removed from them? Mm-hmm. Now, listeners might wonder what I mean by that. Well, what I mean by that is none of them had any fear of God. None of them believed in the coming judgment. None of them had ever been told that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Mm -hmm. None of them believed that there was a part of them that was immortal Mm. and that the body would die and be resurrected, but that their soul would live on. None of them had any awareness of anything other than their body and their feelings Mm-hmm. And so I went in and I said to them imagine living at a time where people lived for eternity even the commoner the plowboy lived for eternity mm. he was always aware of the coming judgment of God it was inculcated it was taught it was it was a monotone of the medieval world that we were spiritual beings and that we would face the judgment of God mm-hmm I said, if you don't understand that this was their life, then you won't understand anything about the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Because in the Reformation, everybody was putting their life on the line. Luther's life was on the line. Calvin would train men to go into being shepherds of God's flock, and they'd go back to France. And then, a little while later, their wife and children would show up at night at Calvin's house. Their husband father had been killed Martyred, And now they were back in Geneva looking for Calvin to help them mm. because they had lost their father. Hmm. You know, you go on and on and on the diet of worms. You go on to the massive wealth and oppressiveness of the Roman Catholic hierarchy and the Pope you look at them using the money of indulgences to build the sistine chapel and hire michelangelo to paint that glorious picture now mm-hmm. i'm using a voice like that because we don't like to think about the reformation either right. we like to just go look at the art you know in the sistine chapel and then you know think about how horrible the sale of indulgences were we never put it together but at the reformation everybody believed in a soul Hmm. The Roman Catholic Church believed that by having these pictures painted that they would do a better job of weaning people from this world to the church whose sacraments would save them, hmm. okay, yeah people today do not believe in a soul. people believe today do not believe in life after death people today believe that they deny life after death publicly by being cremated that's has always been. The focus of cremation. Many Christians are being cremated now because we just do what the culture does. But cremation has always been a denial of the afterlife and a denial of God, an atheistic practice mm-hmm. of those who are pantheistic and want to join with nature as soon as they die. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so let's imagine that there are a group of people in this stultifying, cloying, cotton candy, sticky world that we live in, where to disagree is violence. Mm-hmm. All right. And that we're called by God and set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer to protect God's people and to call those who don't understand they have a soul to recognize their soul and to flee to Christ, you know. For salvation. Right. They have no idea what they need to be saved from. Mm -hmm. And I go back to what I said a couple weeks ago, which is you're behind a trailer, all of a sudden the canoes flip, they're all over the road, it's an interstate, it's dark. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to pull? You know, there was an article recently about how dangerous it is in a hailstorm or a dust storm to go underneath a bridge because it creates a bottleneck and people might be straying off the road and then they'll hit you because you can't get very far away from the road under a bridge. Mm. And so the worst place you can go is under a bridge, even though maybe you want to stop hail from damaging your car, (laughs) you know? And so the whole discussion was about how to save yourself without putting anybody else in danger. Hmm. Well, that's very difficult, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so when you come to the issue of these canoes strewn all over the interstate in Wisconsin, right. You either save your family and yourself or you save the people. You can't say, well, how close can I get to saving the people, but protect myself. Okay. There are times where, Communication must be selfless. Hmm. It must be humble. It must be heroic. (laughs) It must be heroically loud. Hmm. It must be humbly intense. Because the world is this man who will view anything proportionate to the danger that we suffer. When we stand before God and said, I never heard that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were going to judge me. And so we have to, our job is to wake people up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you ask this question about, you know, this guy and his, he's so good at communication and he, he says, you yeah, there are ways of having nonviolent discourse uh, in which we do not disagree with people or we don't tell them they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And immediately, my brain goes two places in Scripture, and I know it's probably really boring to have Scripture brought up into a, into a podcast, but let me do it. Okay. Right. Ezekiel 33, this is the call to every priest, every pastor, every elder, every older woman, Titus 2 woman. The word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a lamb. Now. He's not speaking literally. He's speaking about his judgment. This Mm -hmm. is God. And so what is the sword? The sword can be COVID. The sword can be 9-11. The sword can be January 6th. The sword can be Vietnam. The sword can be the Civil War. The sword can be AIDS. Mm -hmm. God brings judgment and sickness and riots and death to a land. And he doesn't do it purposeless. Mm -hmm. God has a purpose behind every one of his decrees. When I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman. That's what an elder is. That's what a pastor is. And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and doesn't take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. Okay, so. But did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. Hmm. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, he does not turn from his way. He will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now, listen, take that and put it together with Acts 20, where the apostle Paul describes his ministry. And he describes his ministry as going day and night, house to house, warning the people with tears. Mm -hmm. And then he says, so none of your blood is on my hands. Mm -hmm. I have never failed to say to you whatever God called me to say. To say, then you take that and you put it together with 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians verse 14, okay, where the Apostle Paul says, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp and producing a sound, they do not produce a distinction in the towns, how will it be known what is played on the fruit, flute or on the harp? For if the bugle, well, what's a bugle? <laughs> yeah. If the bugle produces an indistinct sound, <laughs> who will prepare himself for battle? There is absolutely no way for us to be Christians, let alone Christian pastors and elders, Titus 2. There is no way for us to do that and be anything other than hate it. By the man that writes that book and by everybody who loves that kind of failure, that kind of death. And that's the world we live in. That is the social media world, even though there are a lot of medieval morality plays in the social media world where people get all worked up about single-use plastic bags and all this stuff. So there are winners and losers Mm -hmm. in the social media world, but it's all a click. It's Mm -hmm. all junior high school playground where you have to keep up with what the latest tiny rule is, but you may not blow the trumpet warning of God's judgment.
0: So let me try to fill in a few things, a few gaps. I think make make sure I'm following you because I think what what you're contending essentially is that the guy who wrote that book and that quote uh, is part of a huge group of people in our world today that says that the the worst thing that can happen is a breakdown in relationships. That's the worst thing. It's not the worst thing. Is not that you're going to be judged by God. It's not that you have sin of your own that you have to deal with. It's not that uh, you have an objective law of God that you can, have to Can face. I change
2: that slightly? I would not say that you break down relationships. What I would say is that the ultimate goal is to avoid communicating verbally, physically, uh, communicating in any way, even in your thoughts, which might horror of horrors come out yeah. that can be accused of being impolite. Okay. I don't even think that they care about relationships. Have you ever noticed the kinds of relationships that people have today? I remember going to the Apple store up in Indy, going in there, and there was a group of young women at the blossoming of life, you know, 15, 17 years of age, sitting in a circle inside. Yeah. There were probably eight to 10 of them. Okay, Not one of them were talking to each other. They all had their phones and were immersed in bits and bites. Yeah, yeah,
0: in games or whatever, texting or something. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's not a relationship. Okay, It's not a relationship. So I don't even think that he cares about relationships. What he cares about is his morality which involves never thinking, doing, saying anything that can be accused of being impolite. Would you say that being impolite means to, to infer guilt? Well, that's only one of many ways of being impolite. Yeah, being but... impolite is, is being loud. You know, you're not supposed to speak anything other than just a, a, a gentle tone. Being polite is ad hominem. You know, there's an endless array of rules that you're supposed to follow in communication. But I'm just denying. Okay. All I wanted to do is deny that their goal is to protect relationships. They do not protect relationships. They ruin them. Well, so, okay. I'm just trying
1: to go back to the point where he talks about being wrong. And that's why I say to imply guilt. If I bring about a verdict of guilt on anyone, it's like the chief sin that anybody can do today. Mm-hmm. And all of those methods, even the raising of the volume of your voice, mm-hmm. makes it seem as if you're that, that you're communicating with the volume of your voice that somebody's wrong and that you need to correct them in their wrongness. That's what we that's often what causes us to raise our voices is that somebody's wrong.
2: Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what I was I wanna, getting at with the guilt. Go ahead. Yeah, but I want to point to the fact that scripture is so clear about volume. Scripture is constantly clear That it is imperative for the follower of God to raise his voice. Yeah, I agree. Okay, but it's not just here where I've read about an uncertain note and blow the Mm -hmm, trumpet mm -hmm. and I've tried to mimic that. It's also true when it comes to worship. The man that has zeal for God has loud zeal. This is why Michael condemned David, her husband, as he danced and stripped off his clothes you know, which is a sort of loudness. Yeah, yeah. But this
1: guy, I don't think would would deny somebody being loud at a concert or being loud at a football game. He might do what you're saying. He might join with Michael in opposing David for being loud about his
2: faith, being loud about his his hope. Yeah, in God. but I think we have to be careful about sports. Sports occupies a niche where it gives us what we are denied all the other times of our life in a ritualized way Safe, that that makes cheap. us feel like we've lived, yeah. we've had enemies, we've been men, we have engaged in violence, but it's all vicarious. I think you're exactly right. I want to
0: take this into the domain of the church because, you know, I use this quote to open up this topic of gelded feminized discourse. We've danced around a little bit, and you said it, Max, earlier, feminized discourse is discourse where you're not allowed to judge someone as guilty or wrong. I think that's one of the things we've seen here. But what is it in the church? Let's try to define that a little bit more.
1: One thing would be authority. Okay. So every way, every way in which authority would be asserted, presumed, is, yeah. demonstrated, exercised, somebody who would follow this guy might say, who do you think you are mm. talking like that? Because nobody can talk with authority.
2: Nobody's allowed to talk with authority. Okay. What else? Well, I would say it even comes down to tone of voice. The mm-hmm. first 15, 20 years of my working as a pastor, people would tell me regularly the thing they liked best about my preaching was that I had the same tone hmm. and the same presentation and conversation as I did from the pulpit. And then I began to think about what effeminacy was. I began to think about discourse in an effeminate world. Okay. A feminized world, but in an effeminate one. And I realized that I was trying to communicate through my tone, through my syntax, through the illustrations I used, that I wasn't really serious. Mm-hmm but mm-hmm. that I was just a fellow struggler, fellow traveler, a wounded healer, and that this might be helpful. You were trying to communicate that
0: you really didn't have expectations of anyone that's listening, but that it just might be helpful.
2: Yes. And that I wasn't making any claims about my own authority. What's interesting is that as soon as I came out of the pulpit, I made very clear claims about myself because I would sit holding my daughters Hmm. and my son because I knew that I had to communicate my tenderness and love for my children. Hmm. Okay. And so it's not that we avoid claims of authority, uh, parading ourselves, raising our voice as David said at a football game and stuff like that. But it's that when it comes to things that really matter, Mm-hmm. We give the lie to our real commitments by being sotovacha, you know, soft, soft voice, low pitch, shaggy dog stories, poetry, quoting hymns, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. saying that these aren't my words but the words of a man who really knows what he's saying. Mm-hmm. It's all self, self abnegation, self minimizing. Yeah, yeah. We might go so far as to call
1: ourselves the facilitator.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's and, perfect.
1: And that's it.
2: That's We're, absolutely We are not the perfect.
1: leader, but I'm here to facilitate yeah. all I of remember
2: us. when I, I, yeah, that's exactly right. When we first got married, I had a wife who, if you have listened to the podcast, Mary Lee, going from feminism to Christianity, you know what kind of wife I had. <laughs> and I was in Madison, Wisconsin. And I was in a church with a bunch of Christian academics who had just planted a church because they hadn't found any church in the community that they could be happy in. Mm. So you can guess how precise they were about their judgments of Christians hmm. and how proud they were, right? Yeah. And so, of course, we started a small group because we believe that small groups are essential for spiritual life, that you get together and confess your sins and pray for one another, yeah. that you be healed. And... I could have it in our house. I could have the food. Mary Lee could help, and I could help with the chairs and the table and the setting and the cooking and buying the food. And we could do absolutely everything. We could say, okay, let's pray now. Okay, let's read the Bible now. Okay, does anybody have anything they want? We could do absolutely everything in that group except have a leader. Hmm. There was not to be a leader. And so when, when problems, moral and sin problems came up in that group, and they did come up in the group, okay, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. could never do it in such a way that had the slightest feel of authority in that group, of authority. Mm-hmm. And it is an awful thing to be an authority without authority. Oh, yeah. Or another way of saying it is it's an awful thing to be responsible for a marriage for children and for a small group and a church right. without any authority. And so when you think about being a facilitator, David, you were talking about this. It is on every level what people want from us. And it is on every level a betrayal of eternity, of the soul, of the sheep, of the flock, and of our duty before God. Mm. Because a facilitator is always prepared to admit that he himself is a sinner, that he himself is often wrong. that, But he's unwilling to be clear and to sound the alarm. You well, know. he's
1: unwilling, I think, to take responsibility. If mm-hmm. you think about it in terms of the military. So you have a platoon of men and you have the lieutenant and he's unwilling to take responsibility for what he's doing for what for, for the work that they're about they're in a war mm-hmm. they have a they have their specific battle that, and their specific part of the battle that they're supposed to participate in he is leading them or he is supposed to lead them in it but how does he go about doing it if he will not take responsibility for it, but rather we'll try to somehow facilitate a group agreement Mm
2: -hmm. on who's
1: going to take point.
2: Our dear dear brother, David Wegner, who is a pastor and taught at Tika over in Zambia and Dola. David used to say, David is, he loves to watch sports, particularly track and field. So this is a heyday for him right now. And David used to say that when you get done playing a game and you're men, what you're really concentrated on is whether you win or lose. He said, if you watch and are around women after a game, he said, what the women are focused on is how their relationships are at the conclusion of the game. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost as if we as pastors today have no goals. Mm. We don't even think in terms of answering. I remember being at 10th Presbyterian the last Sunday that Phil Reichen preached. I happened to be there. Well, Phil got up and he preached his final sermon and it was a poignant pregnant Kairos m- moment. And in the middle of his sermon, he stopped and he said this, he said, I can honestly say that there is not one person who has died while I have been the senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church who has not been prepared to meet his maker. Yikes. Now I might have one or two of the words wrong, but trust me, he said it. Yeah. And I sat there and I thought, yikes. I thought, I can't say that about the souls under my care. Mm-hmm. I thought I could never say that. I, I fail again and again and again mm. to blow the trumpet, to sound a clear note, to, to, to engage in the warfare of mm-hmm. ministry. So I think what we have to realize, I remember Joe Sobrin writing about 20 years ago, he said, today the humble man fights.
0: Mm-hmm. You were talking about the military, and I think that is essential to think about. It's, it's, a, it's a very helpful analogy, because what we exist in our culture to deny is thus saith the Lord. And if, if it gets in your brain that God has actually spoken, spoken. Yeah. then as a man and as a man called to speak the words of God, then it, then you realize it's not up to you to decide what gets said and what doesn't. You're actually supposed to obey and deliver the message of your commanding officer, your, your general. And so it's not about you anymore. It's not about you.
2: And it's about communicating... Clearly what God has said. Yeah, but everything about the training of pastors today is an effort to keep them from speaking clearly what God has said, starting with our Bibles. Well, our, our Bibles have been corrupted. Our seminary professors are all men who have gotten a PhD or women who have gotten a PhD at a secular university where they have been acclimated mm-hmm. to academe. And so, the very beginning of that is to be collegial. Collegial yeah. is the highest sweetener. You want to be reasonable. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, when an academic says collegial, mm-hmm. it, it's just like the highest encomium. It's it's like it's a love word, <laughs> <laughs> a love language. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was a collegial meaning.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well,
0: and you know, if you think about the debates in the academic world they want to have the the ability to talk without anything at stake like with no judgment there's no judgment there's let's just have an interesting intellectual discussion where there's nothing you know heaven and hell these things are not at stake necessarily it's just we're
2: academics and we're and doing and then if this you disagree together. with someone there are no consequences at mm-hmm. all let alone eternally of them being wrong and me being right it's just a jousting match Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it it, it's like a uh it's like a professional wrestling wwt or e or whatever it is (laughs) whatever it is you know it's all for show right i i'll never forget when i started at seminary at gordon conwell i took old testament hermeneutics from meredith klein and Meredith Klein had the most wonderful prayers of anybody that I have ever been led in prayer by because his prayer were just the weaving together of Old Testament scriptures. Mm. But when Meredith Klein lectured, Mm -hmm. I would almost say he hated dispensationalists with a perfect hatred. (laughs) And of course, coming from Wheaton, it was eye-opening to me. And what I noticed particularly was that when Meredith Klein would talk about dispensationals, his sophisticated insults and asides and comments, and I mean, they were so intense, mm. but all in soft voice, yep, yep. all sort of with noblesse oblige, uh, you know, kind of. Well, I might say that. I might, mm-hmm. I might want to say to them. So I.
0: What you're saying is it's dishonest dishonest
2: well I wouldn't it, want it, to it, accuse it, Meredith Klein of being well, dishonest sure, but sure you won't I mean it makes me think of uh in but Ham- nobody would take out their knife yeah and nobody would put up their shield you were sort of lulled yeah it was dishonest go it was ahead dishonest. It, it makes me think
0: of uh it's pretty hilarious at the end of Hamilton when the two of them are about to go shoot at each other and kill each other they make a point of at the end of each letter it says and I am your obedient servant, A.B.R. and whatever, A.ham, or whatever. <laughs> you know, they're being very polite to each other, but they're talking about getting Death. together and killing each other. Yeah. So, so, we deny that thus saith the Lord. I think that's at the very root of our gelded discourse. We deny that thus saith the Lord. And so, we deny that there's anything eternal at stake. And so, so nowadays, people get away with talking. I mean, sorry to bring Meredith Klein up into it, but I think it is very dishonest. And so the man who raises his voice and actually says something with conviction that has expectation out in the open is the one who is accused of being a monster. Whereas a professor who has a very sophisticated way of laying down an insult, frankly, I think of someone like Barack Obama, you know, he would never Mm -hmm. very gentle. I mean, everyone loves him. Wonderful way of speaking. But I mean, the way he would, he could lay down an insult and make clear who he doesn't like is very obvious to the people that, that he didn't like
2: that he didn't like them. So that's where we're at. That gets back to the last session we had, where we were talking about the fact, don't ever believe these people when they tell you that they're not engaging in conflict. Mm. Again, this man saying that you must not make judgments, you must not declare something is wrong. He is declaring that it is wrong to declare that it is wrong. They always commit the very sin that they're trying to condemn. And the only people left in God's green earth today that still believe in wrong coming from the character of God are Christians. Mm -hmm. And so the liberals declare that you're wrong if you do not observe their morality, which is a, well, it's not just petty, it's wicked. Mm -hmm. Their morality has removed sodomy from the closet and has now put Christians in it as haters Mm. if we call people to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Okay, you always have to be very aware of the fact that you cannot trust worldlings. Mm -hmm. They're always lying about what they're doing, what their goals are, and where they're headed. Tim made a pretty bodacious claim just now, and
0: you'll have to join us next week to hear the rest of the conversation. So don't forget to come back next Thursday to hear the rest of it. Thanks again for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Corral. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash outofourminds. And don't forget to register for the Shepherds Conference. Bye for now.